Hello, my Rebels. Today, I pick through the carnage of last night's U.S. election midterms. I'm a little disappointed. I think a lot of people are. We were expecting what they were calling the red wave. It was more of a red puddle. And I don't think Trump performed as well as he thought he would, as he should have done. The hero of the night, obviously, Ron DeSantis, and that won't make Trump happy. I'll take you through it, some of my observations. But first, let me invite you to become a subscriber to Rebel News Plus. That's the video version of this podcast. Just go to rebelnewsplus.com and click subscribe. It's eight bucks a month, and we need that money to pay our bills because we do not take money from government, which sets us apart from 99% of the media in this country. That's Rebel News Plus. All right, here's today's podcast. Tonight, the promised Republican red wave was more like a puddle. I'll take you through last night's U.S. midterm election results. It's November 9th, and this is the Ezra Levant Show. Shame on you, you censorious bug. Well, I was pretty optimistic heading into yesterday's midterm elections in the U.S. I felt optimistic for a number of reasons. Um, not optimistic about the course of the United States. Most Americans felt like the country was on the wrong track. We took you through that detailed New York Times poll a couple of weeks ago. And the reason I refer to it as a New York Times poll is because if liberals are saying the country is upset with a Democratic president, you know it's true. And I thought combined... The bad economy, dangers in foreign affairs, and Joe Biden's poor personal performance, I thought that is going to be a banner year for Republicans. And indeed, the pollsters seem to say so, and the phrase red wave was in headlines everywhere. Makes sense. The economy, jobs, inflation, that's what people care about, versus, well, what exactly does Joe Biden offer? Wokeism, reminders of the pandemic and lockdown. Biden has those awful cognitive moments where he's blurry. He feels every day of his 78 years of age. He actually feels like he's 88. Wars in the background in Ukraine, China saber-rattling, the embarrassing and costly exit from Afghanistan, North Korea being more belligerent. It should have been a great election for the Republicans, but it fizzled. They're still tabulating the votes in certain areas. It looks like the Republicans will retake the House of Representatives, which is important. Looks, though, like they're just tied in the Senate. Could go either way. So much for the red wave. The star of the evening was clearly Ron DeSantis of Florida, the governor. Here's the front page of the New York Post. I think they're exactly right. He won with a nearly 20-point margin over his rival, Charlie Crist. Take a look at this graphic from the exit polls. Latino voters didn't just like Ron DeSantis, they loved him. Obviously, Cubans are against socialism, but even Puerto Ricans and other Latinos were for Ron DeSantis, the Republican. You know, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez is a white person's idea of what Latinos want. Ron DeSantis is a Latino person's idea about what Latinos want. He doesn't use ridiculous words like Latinx. He doesn't 
pander with open borders immigration. He just gives them good government and freedom. It's amazing. He lifted the whole state with him, and incredibly, he won Miami-Dade County. Overwhelmingly Hispanic. Used to be the Democrat Party's firewall in that state. Now it's a more conservative state than Texas. Let that sink in. The Republican margin in Florida was much higher than it was in neighboring Texas. Here's a clip from DeSantis' speech last night. He looked great with his family, his wife, Casey, who has recovered from cancer. Take a look at that lovely family. What a moment. Well, thank you so much. You know, over these past four years, we've seen major challenges for the people of our state, for the citizens of the United States, and above all, for the cause of freedom. We saw freedom in our very way of life and so many other jurisdictions in this country wither on the vine. Florida held the line. We chose facts over fear. We chose education over indoctrination. We chose law and order over rioting and disorder. Florida was a refuge of sanity when the world went mad. We stood as a citadel of freedom for people across this country and indeed across the world. We faced attacks. We took the hits. We weathered the storms. But we stood our ground. We did not back down. We had the conviction to guide us and we had the courage to lead. We made promises. We made promises to the people of Florida and we have delivered on those promises. And so today, after four years, the people have delivered their verdict. Freedom is here to stay. If you ask me what Ron DeSantis stands for, if you ask anyone, I think it's easy to answer. He stands for freedom as opposed to the authoritarian approach of the lockdowns. He's against wokeism. He's for law and order. He's a policy man, and he also has a style of firmness. He doesn't pander to the media. He doesn't mess around with powerful interests. When Disney took a run at him, he took away Disneyland's special legal status without blinking. Oh, you can't do that? Well, he did. That was the bright part of the map for the Republicans. Other parts were terribly disappointing. John Fetterman, who was running for the Senate in Pennsylvania, had a stroke a few months ago. And for a while, he kept it secret. Then it was revealed. He can't form full sentences. He can't understand things. He needs them written out, typed out in a kind of walking subtitle machine. He was up against a slick and telegenic Republican named Dr. Oz from TV. And Fetterman, with a stroke, won in Pennsylvania. How? How? Arizona, another state the Republicans thought they could pick up. Blake Masters, a freedom-oriented America firster affiliated with Peter Thiel, the only libertarian 
in Silicon Valley. He ran and didn't win. Kerry Lake ran. Now, it's still so close for Kerry Lake, and she's fighting that. Again, what kind of a country takes so long to count their ballots? New York State, one of the most progressive places in America. Wow. Lee Zeldin, the Republican contender, came very close to knocking off the appointed Democrat governor. Remember, she took over after uh, Governor Cuomo had me-tooed himself out of office. Now, I went to bed last night disappointed that Zeldin's insurgency wasn't successful, but I'm reminded that more than a million votes were not yet counted last night. Is this a third world country where they just have a million votes sitting around? The state of Georgia has been painful for any Republican. It was the site of a double loss in 2020. Two seats went Democrat that day. One of them was up again last night. The Republicans ran Herschel Walker, a former football star. He did not win, but neither did the Democrat, Rafael Warnock, who both of them were just under the 50% mark. In Arizona law, if you don't win 50%, They have a runoff again. So there will be another election. I am not optimistic. Interestingly, in a statewide vote, the one where Herschel Walker did not hit 50%, the Republican governor did. He actually won fairly handily. How did the local governor win as a Republican? But Herschel Walker did more poorly than him. But back to what I said earlier, what's up with not knowing the results in hours? I take it that Arizona has, sorry, that Georgia law says there has to be a runoff. That's not a problem with counting. But how is it that you have a million uncounted votes in New York? How is it that Arizona (laughs) says they're going to need days or even weeks to count? I saw this video go up yesterday in the middle of the day, and I thought, they're getting started already. Take a look at this. Hello, Maricopa County. I'm Bill Gates, the chairman of the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors. And I'm Stephen Richard, the Maricopa County Recorder. And we're here to give you an update on how things are going so far with the election. We've already had almost 44,000 people show up this morning, check in, and be available to vote. And things are going great out there. But there's one thing that we wanted to address to make people aware of today. And that has to do with our tabulators. We've got about 20% of the locations out there where there's an issue with the tabulator where some of the ballots that after people have voted them, they try and run them through the tabulator and they're not going through. But the good thing is, is we do, first of all, we're trying to fix this problem as quickly as possible. And we also have a redundancy in place. If you can't put the ballot in the tabulator, then you can simply place it here in where you see the number three And this is a secure box where those ballots will be kept for later this evening where we'll bring them in here to Central Count to tabulate them. So this would function much like early voting functions in that we would get your ballot back. Once we've signature verified it, we would send it to our central tabulators. Ballots that are in here will already be in effect signature verified, so we won't need to confirm identity, but we will central tabulate them. This is actually what the majority of Arizona counties do on election day all the time. And just one thing to keep in mind, we have 223 vote centers across the county. So if there are lines at the location you're at, 
or issues with the tabulator, if you would prefer to go to another location, you can do that. Doesn't matter where you go, as long as you're a registered voter here in Maricopa County. Thanks so much. And everybody, if you haven't yet, get out and vote. What a joke. What a clown show. How about just using paper and pencil? You know, uh, election integrity are two words you're not allowed to say. In fact, if you say them in the wrong way on YouTube or other social media, you'll get a strike. You'll be deplatformed. It's very strange. You're not allowed to say that U.S. elections are not reliable. At least you're not allowed to say that about the 2020 election. Democrats say that all the time about elections that Republicans win. I remember it first when George W. Bush beat Al Gore and they looked at the hanging chads, and that case went to the Supreme Court for years. Democrats said that George W. Bush was not the legitimate president. They called him a usurper. That's all fine to say on social media, but you can't say that about Democrat shenanigans. I, I want to show you a quick clip uh, from our live stream last night. I can't even believe this. No ID, just saying your name, saying your phone number or your address, and you vote. Take a look. I don't think Canadians even realize when I went to vote today, all I was asked is, what is your last name? And then they're like, this is your first name. I'm like, yes. And they're like, this is your address. I'm like, yes. And then they just printed out a little receipt, had me sign it. And then I got my ballot and I voted and I put it in the scanner and I left. But who's to say it? if you know someone's first and last name and you know their address, what could stop you from voting for them? Because if she didn't have a computer, it was like, just like a piece of paper with all the people in my area because I'm a smaller precinct. There was no voter ID check. There's none of that going on like it does in Canada. And I'm just shocked every time I vote here being like, this is so weird. Yeah, that really is weird. That's that's terrifying. I mean, you went in there in good faith and no shenanigans, but I can only imagine. Um, so they literally didn't ask you for any any card or any ID of no. any sort. You don't need it. You just need to be registered to vote. And if you're registered to vote, you just go where you're supposed to go. Like, cause like you have them in for your specific area, you go there, you're on a list. They check you off that you've done it. You sign a little thing saying like, yep, this is me. And then you go and get your ballot. Can you believe that? I, I there's just, you know, you know, you need more ID to buy a lottery ticket than to vote. Now, Donald Trump, was not on the ballot, of course, but he was certainly lurking in the background, and he stumped for Republican candidates around the country. Certainly, he was more welcome at Republican events than Joe Biden was at Democrat events. Now, today, Donald Trump was boasting, saying that the vast majority of candidates for whom he endorsed or campaigned won, and I think that is mathematically accurate. It's the exact same message that the New York Times has, when they say 200 election deniers won, that's a term of art at the New York Times. They call anyone who doubts the results of the 2020 election, they call them election deniers, sort of like a Holocaust denier. That's their phrase. I think there's a symbiosis between Donald Trump and the liberal media like the New York Times. They love to fight each other. And so if Donald Trump says something to inspire his base, the New York Times says it to inflame their base in reaction. It's, it's quite something. But it is a fact that key people that Donald Trump endorsed underperformed. Dr. Oz, the Republican candidate in Pennsylvania, how could he not beat a stroke victim? And the governor candidate of that state, how could he not win? 
Blake Masters and, of course, Herschel Walker we mentioned before. I think one of the reasons is that Donald Trump keeps talking about 2020 and how he was wronged. And perhaps he was. I'm sympathetic to that. And that New York Times poll we went through the other week showed that probably about a third of Americans are sympathetic to that, too. But relitigating the details, the ins and outs of that debate, that's inside baseball in 2022 in a country that is on the verge of a recession, has record inflation, and has real crises that affect real people. It was an interesting night. It was certainly not the success I hoped it would be for Republicans. And it makes me think, what will the big show in 2024 be like in the presidential season? On the one hand, you could have Ron DeSantis, a successful governor who can turn a purple state, as they call those sort of half and half states, into a red state with super majorities in the legislature. They can pass anything they want now. There are no statewide offices in Florida held by Democrats. Democrats are almost an extinct species in Florida. DeSantis has a strong media game. He's not a pushover. He's young, especially by comparison to Trump. He's very policy-oriented. He reminds me in some ways of Stephen Harper. He's not very cool and not very funny, but he's solid. Ron DeSantis was a winner last night, but he's not the most likely candidate for the Republicans. That's Trump himself, a man of controversy and division. Now, I love Trump. I was one of the few Canadians who saw in him the ability to beat the Democrats in 2015. I think we were really the only media outlet in Canada that was cheering for him. And that fit the times in 2015 and 2016. It was the right approach to beat Hillary Clinton, which he did, and I don't think any other Republican candidate would have. I love many of the things he did as president, not all the things, but many of them. And I think Republicans now are looking their wounds or counting their wins and thinking, which is the right candidate for 2024? Now, of course, it's possible that another possibility presents itself, another candidate. But I think DeSantis and Trump are the two serious contenders. Trump sees DeSantis looming behind him. We know that because at a rally this week, he gave DeSantis a mean nickname. Remember this? Trump at 71, Ron DeSanctimonious at 10%, Mike Pence at 7. Oh, Mike's doing better than I thought. He later pulled that back and he acknowledged that he, in fact, did vote for DeSantis. I don't know if you saw this clip here. Did you vote for Governor DeSantis? Yes, I did. I think a lot of his own base said, why are you sniping at our most successful governor in America on the eve of an election? Trump, his whole brand, not just as president, but for years in business and showbiz was Trump is a winner. Remember when he said you'll win so much with him, you'll get tired of winning? If we want America to thrive in the 21st century, then we must stop running from the competition. And instead, we must start totally winning and winning and winning again. Remember what I used to say? We're going to win so much. We're going to win that the people of Missouri are going to go to your governor and they're going to say, Governor, please go see the president. We can't stand winning so much. Remember, I used to say that, right? I used to say it, and that's what's happening. That's what's happening. 
And then the governor's going to come to that beautiful historic Oval Office. He's going to say to me, Mr. President, the people of Missouri cannot stand all this winning. They don't want to win so much. They love the old way, where they had lousy job numbers, lousy economic numbers, lousy. They loved it. Please, Mr. President, please not say, and I'll say, Governor, I don't care what they say in Missouri. We're going to keep winning and winning and winning and winning. Remember? America loved to win. Make America Great Again was about winning, about winning wars, or better yet, not getting into them, about winning trade negotiations, about winning economically, about winning market share, about winning everything instead of losing or retreating. That's the Trump brand. That's his casinos. That's his luxury real estate and hotels. But what if Trump actually isn't a winner anymore? That would be like salt that loses its saltiness. What is left? If Trump isn't a winner, what's there? Which would you like to see in 2024? Would you like to see a matchup, a second matchup between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton? Oh, it's possible. It's possible. Which would be more likely to win, Trump versus Hillary round two or DeSantis versus Hillary? What if it was DeSantis versus his rival governor, California's Gavin Newsom. Would you like to see DeSantis in such a matchup? Would you like to see Donald Trump run against Newsom? In 2016, Donald Trump was the only Republican tough enough and smart enough and savvy enough to win, to beat the real enemy, not the Democrats, but the media party. Is that true now? Last night's results tell me that maybe it's not. And maybe Donald Trump, as great as he was and as accomplished as he is, maybe it's time for him to pass the baton to Ron DeSantis, a winner who wins. Stay with us for more. You know, Rebel News has been focused on a number of stories like a laser, including the Trucker Commission of Inquiry in Ottawa. As you know, we've actually rented an Airbnb near the Commission of Inquiry that we've turned into a base camp and mobile studio. Well, it's not mobile, but it's a pop-up studio in Ottawa. Every night at 6 p.m. Eastern, we've had a live stream covering the events of the day, interviewing lawyers, witnesses, Tamara Leach, some of the truckers. It's been amazing. Uh, we've been focused on the U.S. election a little bit and, of course, uh, some of our adventures over the sea, overseas, including to the World Health Summit at Berlin and the C40 conference in Buenos Aires. But there are important subjects that I'm not sure if we've given enough attention to. And I think it's because the mainstream media and mainstream political parties don't really want to talk about them. And, of course, our motto here at Rebel News is telling the other side of the story. So we believe in a diversity of opinions. And our next guest certainly fills those shoes. I'm talking about Maxime Bernier, the leader of the People's Party of Canada, who joins us now from Ottawa. Maxime, great to see you again. Thank you for taking the time. Appreciate you joining us. There's a lot of things to talk about that really aren't covered well in the mainstream. Am I right? 
Yes, you're right, Ezra. And it's good that Canadians can uh, turn to uh, the rebel news and listening uh, the other point of view uh, and uh, the common sense point of view, I must say. Well, I appreciate you joining us. One subject that I know we've talked about a lot in the past, including the Roxham Road open border. Well, Roxham Road has had tens of thousands of people cross it, but Justin Trudeau's government has announced his plans to legally bring in half a million immigrants a year, which is a stunning number. That's got to be more than any other democracy in the world. And I, I just think of how that would affect things from wages to, to housing prices. But I haven't seen any commentary or criticism of this from other political parties or even other mainstream media. What is your take? What is the People's Party of Canada's take on a record half million migrants a year coming to Canada? Yes, Ezra, I must say that you are right saying that, you know, all these establishment national political parties, uh, you know, the Conservative, the NDP and, and the Green, the Bloc Québécois, they won't speak about that. Uh, they, uh, every each of one agreed with that position of uh, half a million people starting in 2025. And for us, uh, we are saying it's mass immigration. Yes, we must have sustainable immigration, but uh, we believe that we must have uh, lower uh, immigration than that number. Uh, and actually, you know, half a million, it is the population of Newfoundland every year in Canada. Every year we'll have a new Newfoundland in Canada starting at 2025. So that being said, they're saying always more and more people, it would be important for economic growth. Uh, you know, <laughs> you don't need to have more people to have uh, prosperity and economic growth. There's a uh, small countries that are very uh, prosperous. Uh, the most important is to increase uh, our purchasing power, our standard of living. And, uh, and you know, if uh, mass immigration were a solution for that, Trudeau started mass immigration in 2019 with uh, 350,000 people and after 400,000 people. And we still have, uh, you know, uh, uh, inflation in this country and uh, and our purchasing power is going down. So what they are saying, more and more people will bring more prosperity. That's not the case. You, you said it's like bringing in a new Newfoundland every year. That's statistically right. But of course, they're not going to Newfoundland. <laughs> I think the majority of them are going to Toronto Vancouver, um, some French-speaking migrants would probably go to Montreal. So they're really going to the big cities, which is understandable because many of these folks are coming from ethnic communities that they would probably want to live in or amongst or near. So what you're really doing is you, you're pouring probably 300, 400,000 of these people into the housing markets in Vancouver and Toronto, which are already two of the most expensive cities in North America to live in. I mean, the average housing prices in Toronto is well over a million dollars for an average house, same in Vancouver. I, I don't know why people don't make the connection between supply and demand. Like you bring in half a million more people a year, you're gonna need hundreds of thousands of houses in addition to existing uh, housing requirements. I, I don't know how you, how, Trudeau or anyone can c claim to talk about the cost of housing while yeah. almost doubling immigration. 
Yes, you're right, Ezra. And you know, half a million is a lot of people. And actually, uh, I, I was able to watch an interview that Pierre Poliev did uh, with the National Post uh, two days ago. And he said, uh, this country is a huge country. So they can go, you know, in, uh, I don't know, uh, Newfoundland and other places. But the reality is, and you were right about that, 42% of them, if you look at the data and the statistic, 42% of them are going to, Mont to Toronto and Vancouver, the, these uh, two big cities. So yes, that has a, an impact on uh, the prices of houses over there. And, and, and the solution to that is to have sustainable immigration. But these uh, uh, establishment political parties won't speak about that. Uh, Poliev is saying, you know, we must force uh, municipalities to change their bylaws. Uh, you know, that's not respecting the constitution. The easy answer to uh, the prices of houses that is going up in uh, Toronto and Vancouver is to stop mass immigration. And, and, and like that, that, that will help. And actually, the, the finance minister said that in an interview a couple of months ago. She, she said it's mathematic, mathematical. We need to have fewer people or we need to build more houses. So the solution is fewer people. And, uh, and actually, when, you, when we are saying that, when, when these people are going to Toronto and Vancouver, people living in Toronto and Vancouver are, are leaving these cities. Uh, they are selling their houses over there and they are going to another uh, town or another cities and prices of houses is going up in these cities. Mm -hmm. so, so that's a very important. We need to have fewer immigrants and we cannot tell them, you know, don't go to, to Toronto or Vancouver. Uh, we cannot dictate them where to go. Uh, we need to, to have people that will be with us because they believe in Canadian values, they will share our values, and they will come here to work. But actually, if you look at the data right now, only 26% of them are, are immigrants that are coming to Canada. Uh, they're economic immigrants. That means that, uh, you know, that person will have a job in this country because an entrepreneur was not able to find a Canadian for that job. 26% of skilled immigrants. We must increase that and having fewer uh, refugees. And like you said, people who are crossing uh, the border in my own province in Quebec illegally, 20,000 of them uh, since the beginning of this year. 20,000, they're crossing the border. Do you really believe, Ezra, that their life is in danger in the state of New York? Mm -hmm. when they're crossing with good cheese and, and mm -hmm. big luggages. No, they're coming here uh, and, and they are not respecting our, our borders. They, if they want to come, they can come crossing the official point of entry. And they won't do that because we will tell them, you know, you're not a refugee. You have to go back to the States. And, uh, and we are the only party that is saying we must stop that. And I said during the last campaign, we must have a fence, not a wall, just a fence over there and telling them if you want to cross and come to Canada, you are welcome. But you just have to cross maybe uh, 500 uh, uh, meters at, at your uh, at your uh, uh, right, and you'll have you'll have uh, an official point of entry, and you can you'll be able to cross. But we'll ask you the real questions. You are not a refugee; you must go back. But because of that uh, agreement with the U.S., if they cross an unofficial port of entry, they can claim that they are refugees.
refugees and we cannot tell them go back mm -hmm. to the US. So that's mm -hmm. why we need to have a fence. But you know, it's uh, you cannot speak like that in this country. It's not politically correct, but we are doing politics uh, differently and we need to uh, acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. Now, you, you said that only 26% of these migrants are economic class. Can I ask where you got that statistic from? That's actually a shocking statistic. It suggests that, you know, more than 300,000 people a year will be dependent. Uh, they'll either yeah. be on, on welfare or maybe they will eventually find jobs. But, but if 74% yeah. of those half million people are not economic migrants then all the arguments for mass immigration that the liberals and others put forward are, are, are not, well, they don't stand up. Where's that figure from, that 26%? Yes, thank you for asking. In the 75%, you have the refugees, you have the people coming on the reunification of family. When you're speaking about reunification of family, it's the it's the big family. You know, we, we agree that if we are a skilled worker and you want to come here, you can come uh, and you can bring your wife or your husband and your children. That's the immediate family. But that's not what is happening on the reunification of family. You can have your brother, your sister, your grandmom, your granddad. We must stop that. But also, if you are a skilled immigrant and you are coming here, you are the one that will work. Your wife or husband won't work and your children won't work. So it's why, you know, <laughs> under the, the skilled immigrants, uh, usually it's only that skilled person. And if you count only that skilled person it would be 26 percent and uh, because the immediate family won't work mm -hmm. here in our country mm -hmm. but the data coming from the government they are including the skilled immigrant and his or her immediate family that's why they can tell you that oh about 50 percent of them are skilled immigrants that's not real the real number is if you count only that skilled immigrant it's 26 percent and we are we are in agreement that the, that person can bring his immediate family but we must know that you know the wife usually or the husband won't work and they are not coming here because we need uh, that person to help us to build our economy they are coming here because the husband or wife was a skilled immigrant mm -hmm. so that's a big difference but the the, the official if you look at the official data that's the real statistic 26 percent of them are skilled immigrant that when they will cross our border they will have a job and they will work work immediately Mm -hmm. And usually, if you look at the data coming from Statistics Canada, it will take between five and 10 years for the other members of the family to work in our country. Hmm. Well, I tell you, uh, just this conversation we've been having for the last 10 minutes is a conversation that really is nowhere in this country. It's certainly not in Parliament. It's not in the opposition parties. And it's not in, in the media. I think that the only people who are skeptical about mass immigration are the people. Every poll I've ever seen says that people think the number is too high. Angus Reid does an annual survey on this, and, and it's practically 10 to 1. And, and yet there is no voice opposing it. I want to talk about another controversial subject about which there's even more conformity, a subject that if you dare to have even a nuanced point of view, not only are you called wrong, which is fine, but you're called a foreign agent of disinformation. And I'm talking about 
Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And of course, I'm against the invasion. I mean, against any war. I mean, certainly against an invasion by Vladimir Putin, a former KGB agent who I think has imperial intentions. I'm obviously sympathetic to the Ukrainian victims of this war. That's the battleground. Um, But how to handle this war, how to respond to it, I think is the subject of a fair debate. I don't think we've had that debate in Canada. Any questions about it are being called disloyal. What is your position on the war in Ukraine? What should Canada do, if anything? And do you have a comment on anything Trudeau has said and done about this war? Yeah, we must. It's not our war. We must uh, just uh, stop everything that we are doing. The Canada, our country is giving money to Ukraine. Uh, We are helping uh, Ukraine uh, armies. It's not our war. And uh, and like you, you know, I'm not for that invasion. Uh, You know, I'm not a pro Putin. But when you're speaking about peace and prosperity in our country, the mainstream media would, oh, Bernie is a pro Putin. No, you just have to look at the history of our country. And the history of our country is a country that is a middle power that will fight for peace and prosperity. And, you know, we were not part of the war in Iraq. And I believe that Chrétien took the right decision at that time. And uh, and we need to promote peace. We need to promote a diplomatic solution in, in uh, Ukraine. We are the only, like you said, national political party that is not pro-war. We are pro-peace. And if you look at uh, what happened in the past, and if you know the history, uh, Khrushchev tried to have a a missile in Cuba in 1962. Actually, last October, that was the 60th anniversary of the Cuba crisis. And at that time, Kennedy said, no, we don't want a a communist country that will have missile at our doors. And, uh, you know, that was a a big crisis. And at the end, uh, uh, Kushnev decided not to go ahead with that plan to have missiles in Cuba. And we said, okay, and when I'm saying we, the West Western world and the U.S. said okay, and and that was it. But we must remember that Putin was saying the same thing a couple of years and months ago. He said, "I don't want any uh, missile on the in Ukraine. It will be at my doors." And we are pushing. We, the Western world, are pushing Ukraine to be part of NATO. If Ukraine is part of NATO, we will have a NATO base in Ukraine at the doors of uh, of uh, Russia. And you know what was good for for us in 1962 must be good also uh, in 2022. We must remember that. So let's have a discussion. Let's put all these parties uh, around the same uh, table to have a a peaceful discussion. But, uh, you know, it's not mainstream saying that because it's not politically correct. And and for us, I believe that would be the best thing for our country to, to promote peace and prosperity in Ukraine. And it's not our war. We not must not be part of that. But these politicians, establishment politicians are, you know, because we have one million uh, Canadians from Ukraine origin and they are pandering to to them. And that's why I believe we are part of that war right now. We can say no to uh, NATO like Chrétien did. And that must be the position of our country. And it's too bad that it is not. But you can count on us. We will always fight for what is good for this party, for this for this country, sorry, and this party. You know, I, uh, I remember when Justin Trudeau was running for prime minister 
before he won his first election, and he was asked about Canada's CF-18s, which were engaged against the ISIS terrorist group. And one of the very first things Trudeau did, before he was even officially sworn in as prime minister, is he told Barack Obama at the time that Canada was pulling our CF-18s out, and Obama wanted Trudeau to keep them in. And I remember Trudeau saying, mocking generals, pulling out their CF-18s and seeing how big they are, like he was making fun of warmongers. Here's a quick clip of that. So will you be uh, Jean Chrétien, though? You still want to see the proof is the proof is the proof, or are you pretty well made up your mind that it would be better for us to stay in a non-combat role? I, I, I haven't made up my mind, but the onus is on Mr. Harper to demonstrate that a shift from a non-combat role that we've established right now uh, to a combat role is the right thing for Canada, the right thing for Canadians, but also the right thing for, for, for the international community. There are an awful lot of things that Canada can and should be doing. I mean, you look, think, about, think about Canada's reputation around the world and what we've done around refugees. Whether it be the Vietnamese boat people, whether it be uh, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the Ismailis uh, in Uganda, in East Africa, uh, whether it be uh, even more recently uh, the, the Tamil community uh, fleeing a, a civil war uh, in Sri Lanka. You know, Canada has been a place that draws in and helps refugees in a significant and serious way. Now, in this situation, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of displaced peoples in the region who aren't looking to all, you know, leave the region, that's where their homes are, they need support to get through uh, this very, very difficult time. Canada has a capacity and an expertise in doing just that. Why aren't we talking more about that? Why aren't we talking more about the kind of humanitarian aid that Canada can and must be engaged in, rather than, you know, trying to whip out our CF-18s and show them how big they are? You know, it just doesn't work like that in Canada. So here yeah. was Justin Trudeau, who was very sympathetic frankly, to returning ISIS terrorists. He said we have something to learn from them. I mean, here's that clip on CTV. While other countries are prosecuting citizens who went abroad to fight for ISIS, Trudeau believes some returning home to Canada can still be rehabilitated. There's a range of experiences when people come home, and we know that actually someone who has engaged and turned away from that hateful ideology can be an extraordinarily powerful voice for preventing radicalization uh, in uh, future generations. That was a shocking thing for him to say. So he was soft on Islamic terrorism with the Islamic State. He pulled out our CF-18s from that battle, even though Barack Obama specifically asked him for it. He denigrated our armed forces. But suddenly that peacenik sounds like a veritable warmonger. I mean, Canada used to be a peacekeeping country. That was one of the liberal brands. I just yeah, don't absolutely. recognize this prime minister we have. He's so butch all of a sudden. He, he sounds like an army general. I just don't know why the Justin Trudeau of seven years ago, who was mocking militarism and generals, is now breaking out his toy soldiers and moving them all over the map. I, I find it unusual. 
And, and, and you must also uh, remember, Ezra, that we didn't have also the right equipment for our Canadian forces. We did that war in Afghanistan, and at that time I was foreign affairs minister, and I was begging uh, my counterparts, other foreign affairs ministers all across the world, to help us in Afghanistan with resources, with plane, uh, because our Canadian forces didn't have the right equipment, and and they still don't. So so let's you know uh, put more money and respect our, our signature when we said we need to spend 2% of our GDP in our in our Canadian forces. And we must do that, you know, having a plan to do that. We won't be able to do that in the first year, but we must have a plan to increase and, and give our Canadian forces the right uh, resources and, and equipment. Uh, but, uh, but now we are, you know, spending money in Ukraine and, and sending our equipment over there. We must not do that. And yes, you're right. This uh, this country has been known as a peacekeeper, and I believe that that must that is the, the solution for that crisis that we have in Ukraine right now. But I don't understand Trudeau, and Trudeau is not in line with the Liberals and also the NDP as well. Uh, the NDP under uh, Ed Broadbird, Broadbent, they they were fighting for peace and prosperity, and now the NDP and Trudeau and the Conservative and the Bloc Québécois and the Green, they are in that war and. Uh, you, you must save uh, Ukraine. It's not our war. We must not be part of that. Mm-hmm. Well, that's certainly a contrarian point of view, and I know it'll get you labeled a foreign agent. I, <laughs> I think it already has. I, I know the University of Calgary, Professor Boucher, Trudeau's yeah. disinformation czar, has called you a Putin agent. He's called me that, too. I'm not a Putin agent. In fact, I, I've written a whole book condemning him and Gazprom, but uh, the fact yeah. that that I don't uh, bend the knee to Trudeau, I guess we've been labeled. Well, listen, Maxi Berdia, great to catch up with you. And you'll be speaking at the Rebel News Live conference, which is a great thing. We used to do a lot before the pandemic. We're getting back into it again. We're going to have about 15 speakers, each for about 15 or 20 minutes. And we're grateful that you'll be there. If folks want to come and meet you in person, go to rebelnewslive.com and you can see the ticket prices there for students or seniors. It's a great event. Thanks for coming for that, by the way. It's going to be great. Uh, thank you, Ezra. I'm very pleased to be there, and I will take that time uh, at that conference to explain a little bit in more details our position on the war uh, in uh, Ukraine and, uh, like uh, like I just said, our position for fighting for peace and prosperity. So thank you for having me, and uh, I, I will see you at that event. Well, that'll be a great one. And just uh, for the record, we have given invitations to other political leaders from other political parties, including Premier Danielle Smith from Alberta, Premier Doug Ford in Ontario, and Pierre Polyev, the leader of the Conservative Party. Maxime Bernier, leader of the People's Party, great to see you. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Ezra. Have a nice evening. Bye-bye. You too. There you have it, Maxime Bernier. Stay with us. More ahead. Welcome back. Your letters to me. Stay Ray says, hope Elon starts unbanning people soon or all grow suspicious of how much he really loves free speech. Prove it. Well, imagine the list of people who would be brought back to life after being sent to Twitter heaven. Donald Trump being the first and most obvious one. You know, even some Rebel News alumni like Tommy Robinson. I wonder if they will be allowed back on the platform. It'll be interesting. Morage01 says, after the not unexpected lackluster performance by the Republicans in yesterday's election, 
Trump should think twice about running in 2024. You know, I, that was my monologue today. I mean, I still like Trump and he did amazing things for America. I think he really saved America from Hillary Clinton and from what a continuation of the first Obama presidency would have been. We can see the last two years what a Democrat win would have been. And thank God Trump was there. Trump did a great many things, and he was going to do many more until he was defenestrated in 2020. I think there are real questions about American election integrity. The fact that the richest, most modern country in the world can't count their ballots on election night is deeply embarrassing. Of course, some, some states can. Florida and Texas, uh, two of the largest states, had no problem counting them within hours. Why can't Arizona or New York do the same? Brazil just had their presidential election. They counted the results in one night. Why can't America? It only makes you curious about shenanigans. Someone named Canadian Rumble Guy says, Trump's narcissism won't allow him to step aside and let a better person run. He's putting his pride above what America needs to move ahead. Too many Americans who don't like Trump would vote Republican if he wasn't still making it all about him. Trump is going to be the downfall of American democracy. I don't think he's going to be the downfall of American democracy, but I do think that him, I mean, that the thing about Trump is Trump is Trumpism. Trump is about himself. It's about his personality, his charisma. He takes up all the oxygen in a room. And when he's on and when he's fighting for something important, he's amazing. When he knows what he wants, when there's a deal to get on behalf of Americans, on behalf of the free world, Trump is the guy you want. But when Trump is just talking about Trump, especially in an American economic recession, it just rings self-centered. And I think that a policy wonk like Ron DeSantis, who shows he can win and win Latino voters, I think that that combined with him being a generation younger, I think that's a powerful thing. Don't count Trump out. I mean, he's made a, a lifetime of successes by being counted out. He's fallen down and gotten up more times than most. But I think that the magic, I'm not saying it's gone, but it wasn't evident last night. Hopefully, the Republican candidate for governor, Kerry Lake, in uh, Arizona can pull through. And it'll be a bit of a miracle if it could in New York, too. There are a few that we shouldn't write off yet. But as a whole, Trump's people, where it counted, did not win last night. How do you lose to a stroke victim? That's our show for today. Until tomorrow, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, good night, and keep fighting for freedom. So, hey, Alexa for Urban News, and I'm currently in Ville Saint Laurent, in front of the restaurant Vino Rosso, where Mr. Trudeau is holding a fundraising event for the Liberal Party. So, it's very funny because Christian Freeland recently did say that for fighting against inflation, Canadians should think about maybe cutting the subscription for Disney Plus that is used for entertaining children. I personally, as a mother and wife, look carefully at my credit card bill once a month. And last Sunday, I said to the kids, you're older now, you don't want to watch Disney anymore. Let's cut that Disney Plus subscription. So we cut it. It's only $13.99 a month that we're saving but every little bit helps. And I think every mother in Canada is doing that right now. And I wanna to say to all of those mothers, I believe that I need to take exactly the same approach with the federal government's finances, because that's the money of Canadians. 
when we know that Justin Trudeau in person went to London for the funeral of the Queen and he paid with the taxpayer money a hotel room of $6,000 a night. So we are not leaving. We know that now Mr. Trudeau was already inside of the building when we arrived, but as rebel, we will stay here until the end. We will try to catch him because we have questions for him. We want to ask why he, speak, he didn't speak out when Quebec province did use the non-withstanding clause, but he's doing it with Doug Ford. And if he will apologize to Canadian, if we find out with the Public Order Emergency Commission that the Emergencies Act was not necessary for dismantling a peaceful trucker protest. So we will be here until the end and we will try to, to speak with the attendee. Let's check it out. Pardon? For the event? Yeah. For uh, Justin Trudeau event? 6.30. Ah, yes, at 6.30, I know. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, pardon? Yes, it's up. Oh. Yes. Oh. oh yeah, thank you. So hey folks, we didn't get Justin Trudeau. Unfortunately, uh, we it disappeared. And when we know that $1,600 for not even two hours of event, this is pretty expensive for per hour. Huh? So we will go in the street and ask the people in Montreal what they think about all of this. Let's check it out. Yesterday, Mr. Trudeau was in town in Montreal because he was holding a fundraising event for the Liberal Party. My question today is Christia Freeland did ask Canadians to fight against inflation to cancel the, their Disney Plus subscription. And we know that Justin Trudeau went to London and he paid himself with the taxpayer money, a hotel room of $6,000. What do you think about this nonsense? The financial way of how they continue to blow the taxpayers' money is a phenomenal debt that causes Canada never to be able to achieve their greatness by showing Aboriginal sensitivity and making it practical because they continue to abuse us in ways that uses the taxpayers' money in other ways that are inappropriate because if they're able to see the truth about the things and the destruction of what it causes Aboriginal people of this country, they would never choose to use $6,000 for a hotel room. Ça fait énormément mal, mais bon. Ce sont eux qui gouvernent. On ne sait pas quoi faire. Non, mais c'est gaspillage. Parce qu'il y a des hôtels moins chers et confortables. Et si elle voulait donner l'exemple pour... pour Sauver l'argent, pourquoi il fait, pourquoi il fait ça? Il n'est pas dans le même monde que toutes les familles du Québec, là, dans le fond. Le, 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 pour l'affaire de Disney+, et compagnie, bien, on a besoin de divertissement. Lui, c'est ça, c'est plus facile pour lui, mettons que l'argent qu'il fait. Puis en même temps, il y a bien des dépenses que c'est le gouvernement qui paye pour lui. Fait que ça, on n'est pas tout, on n'est pas tout au courant des fois, malgré que malgré, c'était quand même public. Là. Mais le côté chambre d'hôtel à 6 000, c'est sûr qu'il pourrait avoir des, des, des... Ça pourrait être un petit peu plus bas. Je pense que ça pourrait faire la job pareil. C'est très hypocrite. Je vais lui dire ça même en face. Que c'est très hypocrite de payer 6 000 pour une chambre d'hôtel pendant qu'il y a des gens 
À Montréal et partout au Canada qui meurent de faim. I guess it's a big contradiction for the act that we are doing right now for the Disney Plus. Mm -hmm. That's it. And you? So he's saying to unsubscribe from Disney Plus in for order saving money, but he's, he's using $6,000 of our money for a hotel room. It's basically a contradiction that does not make sense. Like, how could you say, how much is Disney Plus? What, like 20, 30 bucks a, a month? $13.99. A month? Yeah, yeah it's not basically nothing. It's like a less than a coffee a day. So like, and him going to spend like one night in a, in a I know, it doesn't make sense. So you see it, uh, the people I've saw, a lot of them find that it's really hypocritical to hurt the government telling citizens of Canada to unsubscribe from Disney Plus when we saw them throwing the money through the window like the hotel room at $6,000. So I hope you enjoyed that report. It was Alexa for Ruben News.